Um, but today we're going to launch into our first series of 2023. We're in February and we're only just getting into a series, but we've been through some great stuff already this year. But we are going to be diving into our first proper series uh, of this year. And, you know, we started at the, the beginning of the year looking at vision and how actually what we were going to do is devote ourselves to a whole bunch of stuff according to Acts 2.42. If you can't remember, it's on the chalkboard at the back. Go and remind yourselves. Um, but one of those things is to the apostles' teaching. And so what we're going to do is have a look at the beginning of what some call the greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount. And so at the beginning of that sermon, the first 12 verses, they sit under the heading the Beatitudes. And so we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes for the next uh, seven, eight weeks, whatever it is that takes us all the way through to Easter. Um, so we're going to be delving into uh, this portion of scripture and I'm excited for it. Pete Grieg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, he said this, if the Lord's prayer is the creed of Jesus, then the Sermon on the Mount and at its heart the Beatitudes is the manifesto of Jesus. And the late English theologian John Stott described the Sermon on the Mount as this. He said, it's the best known but least obeyed part of Jesus' teaching. It is, he says, the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered. The most complete delineation, that is a precise decision, anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. And so we're going to be looking into this, this theme, this uh, portion of scripture, the Beatitudes, and it's a set of principles, it's a, it's a call to action that present Jesus' view, his, uh, his stance, his, his, his kind of point of view on the way in which we should live in the world that we are in. And so I think it's going to be quite a challenging series for us. I hope it is, because actually the, the purpose of hearing and reading the Word of God is that we grow, that we develop, that we become more and more like Jesus. And so I think it is going to be a challenge because it is countercultural, like both of those quotes said, that it goes against the grain of society. It did then and it does still today in the 21st century. And so these statements, these truths that Jesus declares they challenge the condition of, of humanity in the world that we're living in today. And you know, if anything can change the heart of man, if anything can, can challenge us and change the way that we live, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so I believe that that shift, that change, that, that transformation, it begins with us as believers, as followers of Christ. It begins with us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into the Beatitudes. And the main purpose really is, is to help us live more beautifully in a broken and ugly world. Because we can look around right now as war rages in Europe with the, the devastation that's going on in Turkey and Syria, closer to home with the Church of England itself looking like it's kind of bursting at the seams and on the verge of fragmentation. But Jesus isn't surprised by any of this. It doesn't shock him. He doesn't worry him. It doesn't scare him at all. You know, he said, didn't he, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that there would be great suffering in the world. And he prayed fervently for unity in the church, perhaps because he knew what challenges lay ahead in the years to come. But what Jesus is saying at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, this message to his people, is that in amongst all of that stuff, 
in amongst all the pain, in amongst all the brokenness, in amongst all the wars and the grief and the fractured society that we live in, in amongst all of that stuff, here is a manifesto by which you can live by. And so let's read the whole of the, this portion of scripture, the first 12 verses. We'll read the Beatitudes and then this morning I'm going to give just a bit of an overview of them as a whole and then we're just going to dig into to number one. And so it's found in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's just dive into some context of the Beatitudes before we kind of look into each individual one. And if you flick back just one chapter to the end of Matthew chapter 4, you see that news is spreading of Jesus. So this is quite early on. In his ministry, if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, he's baptized, he's gone into the wilderness, he's come out and he's started to heal people, he started to to minister to people and then we get the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've just seen kind of this news spreading about Jesus, his teaching, his power to heal the sick and then in uh, chapter 4 verse 25 it says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities around the area, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so what we're seeing is these crowds of people, these these towns in the kind of surrounding area that have heard the news about Jesus, about this, this man who is saying incredible things, who is healing the sick, who is performing miracles. They've heard this news and they're traveling far and wide to get a glimpse of what's going on, maybe to be healed by him, maybe to sit underneath his teaching. And some of them are traveling days, some of them are traveling up to a week, if you look at the geography of the the places that are named in that scripture. And then we see in Matthew 5, it says, seeing the crowds, so they've they've gathered now, they've found him, they've they've started to group uh, in this place. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, And there's almost a mirror here, I believe, that as you read this portion of scripture with uh, Moses in the Old Testament, because we know, don't we, that Moses went up the mountain and he received the the Ten Commandments from 
God. And I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that Matthew, the, the author of this gospel, and one of the most Jewish of the gospel writers, used this nod to the Old Testament. You'll often find that he's, he's using kind of a language that, that refers back to Jewish culture, that kind of says, okay, you, you know and remember this stuff, so let me now put what Jesus is doing in the context of the Old Testament. And so we see kind of this, this mirror of Moses going up a mountain, hearing from God, receiving this instruction for how to live. And so as he tells, as Matthew tells this story of Jesus, it's almost like he's using the the language to say, Jesus is now releasing a new Ten Commandments. Not that they were to replace the law, but just to kind of add value, perhaps maybe strengthen, maybe just give a, a new fresh insight into what the the kingdom of God looks like. And so Jesus went up the mountain and then it says he sat down. So what's going on there? Is he maybe feeling a bit tired? We've heard, haven't we, that he's been traveling around and he's been doing a lot and speaking to a lot of people and that can be, can be draining and exhausting. So maybe he's, he's feeling a bit tired. He just needs a rest. Maybe he just wants to get comfy. It's kind of like sitting down in a chair. He's like, sit down, let me tell you a story. And he's just kind of relaxing a little bit. But actually, in, in Jewish culture, that's not what's going on. What, what it, it's happening here is that, that rabbis would often sit down in order to teach. That is the posture that they, they assumed when it came to teaching about, uh, about Christianity, about faith. And so what we're seeing is Jesus assuming a posture of authority as he comes to teach these beatitudes and he comes to preach this this message this sermon on the mount and so he's he's assuming this cultural posture of authority as he brings these eight blessings and and as we read through them what we'll see is this this pattern that that Jesus names a group of people oftentimes that are thought to be unfortunate maybe pitied even and he pronounces them as blessed Blessed are those who are meek, those who mourn. He, he, he announces this group of people and then he blesses them. And so that word blessed or blessed, you know, in, today, in today's society, we almost trivialize that word, don't we? we? We perhaps look at a child playing and we go, oh, bless. And that's kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of majority of the way we use it. It's, a, it's quite a trivialized uh, word in our, in our language today. But in, in this context, it's, it's almost impossible to explain in like one or two words the, the depth of meaning behind this word blessed. In Greek, the word is makairios, and it, it sort of has connotations of joy and of happiness. But it doesn't mean you're blessed as in, oh, I'm blessed because I've got all of this stuff. And it doesn't mean I'm happy as in, oh, I'm feeling happy. That's, that's not kind of what it's, what it's saying. It's more, of an, it's more of an internal joy, an internal joy that's not impacted by any external circumstances. You know, happiness in the world today is, is so reliant on what's going on around us, isn't it? You know, we, we, are, we are happy or we are joyful or we have that kind of feeling of, of goodness in our life based on what's going on, based on our relationship status or our career prospects or our bank balance or how well our football team is performing or the weather. 
These things all impact on how happy we are feeling. But the joy of the Lord, to be, to be blessed in the sense of this portion of Scripture, it's a gladness in our hearts that come not from the state of the, our lives at this moment in time, not from the state of the, the world around us, not from our, our physical state or our emotional and mental state or anything that's going on in the world right now. The joy of the Lord being blessed in this sense, it comes from knowing God, it comes from abiding in Christ, and it comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, we all want to be happy, don't we? I don't think there's anyone that that wants to be miserable. We all want to be happy, but then Jesus creates this counter-cultural, upside-down list of characteristics for happiness. And again, there's this pattern in the Beatitudes that that what happens is it consists of two phrases, the the condition and the result. And so he says, "Here's here's the condition, but here's what's available to you. Here's the the kind of potential that can be ours. For they shall, it says. For theirs is. There's this potential that is available to us if we assume this characteristic, this condition. And we know, don't we, that Jesus came. He came to to die for our sins so that we can have relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's the gospel. That's That's the good news of Jesus. But that's not all there is, is it? There's more to it than that because Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins but he also came to to heal our marriages and to restore the brokenhearted and to heal our pain he came to meet us where we're at to give us purpose and to release the gifts of the Holy Spirit into our lives and you know Jesus came to earth not only to sit on a mountain and teach these principles but also to live them out to live out these principles so that he could demonstrate to us kindness and love and mercy and grace. And he didn't do it so that we can look at him or we can read these stories of Jesus and think, wow, isn't he amazing? He lived out these these principles so that we had an example by which we can follow, so that we can look at the way he lived his life And not just be like, wow, isn't that amazing? But think, wow, isn't that amazing? I want to be more like him. And so that we can can make every effort to, to become more and more like him, to be transformed, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, more and more into his likeness. And so that is the the purpose of why Jesus came, why he not just taught these principles, but he lived them out for us. And so as we work through the Beatitudes over the next few weeks, my, my hope is that the values that sit within these begin to come and dwell within our hearts and in our lives and that each and every one of us begins to live them out. You know, I pray that we begin to realize, to, to grasp hold of these, for theirs is, for they have in our own lives. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we're going to jump into... Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When asked what Jesus meant by this, Billy Graham said this. He said, what did he mean? Simply this, 
we must humble, we must be humble in our spirits. If you put the word humble in place of the word poor, then you'll understand what he meant. So that's an interesting take on it just from the, from the get-go so that we can try and get hold of and grasp what it is that's meant by this, this phrase, to be poor in spirit. You know, we know, don't we, that to be physically poor means to, to not have enough money to live at a standard that is deemed comfortable in the society in which we live. But to be poor in spirit, what does that mean? What does it look like for us to be poor in spirit? Well, it looks like, I believe, to recognize that we've got nothing. To be poor in spirit means to recognize and acknowledge I've got nothing. And therefore, I completely and utterly depend on God. And being physically poor might drive us to recognize that in our lives. But that can't be the only route to it. Otherwise, some of us would really struggle. And so we need to kind of find a way to, to get to this place of understanding that we are poor in spirit. Because Jesus wants us to humble ourselves, to, to declare to him, God, I'm not enough. On my own, I am not enough. Because I think for many of us, we can try so hard to be self-sufficient, to be independent, to to try and do things in our own strength, believing the lies that actually being self-sufficient and being independent make us strong. We hear popular culture songs all about it, don't we? The rise of independent women and <laughs> Beyonce doing a thing. I heard a preach the other day where Beyonce was mentioned far too much. It was very confusing to me. But there's this kind of rise in culture that actually, it, it makes us strong if we are independent if we are self-sufficient, if we don't need to rely on other people, if we don't need to ask for help. But the counterculture, upside-down message that Jesus is teaching in this very first beatitude is, you cannot do it on your own. You have nothing without me. And so we need to come to a place where we recognize, where we acknowledge, where we humble ourselves to say, yeah, you're right. I'm not enough. And that can be a hard thing to say, can't it? That can be a hard thing to acknowledge because we want to be enough. I don't need anyone's help. I can do it on my own. But God says, no, humble yourselves. You are not enough. We need God. In James 4, verse 6, it quotes the proverb that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so that's an interesting kind of take on this portion of scripture, because when we live to the, the world's kind of view of you should be independent, you should do things on your own, you shouldn't ask for help. What this scripture is saying is that that isn't strength, that isn't power, that isn't go you, you're amazing. That's being proud. That's what the scriptures say. That kind of attitude is pride. And so the opposite of that is humility. So we need to humble ourselves. But God gives grace to the humble. And so instead, we need to live by Jesus' words in Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
You know, these things that Jesus says time and time again through Scripture, it just, it baffles us, doesn't it? Because it goes so against everything. What In order to be of value, I need to become nothing. That just makes no sense in today's society. Surely, those who have value, those who have worth, those who are, who are uh, worth knowing are those who are performing well in their jobs, who are at the top of their game in their sports field. Those are the people to be admired, to be looked up to, to be, to be attaining towards. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Humble yourselves. Let go of everything. Acknowledge that you are worthless. And then he will lift us up. Being poor in spirit is to recognize we've got nothing at all, that we are destitute. Look at how some of the other translations put it. In the New Living Translation, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. God's Word Translation says, Blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless. And the message says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And I think that's often, that last translation is often one of the roots that we take to get to this place of acknowledging that we're poor in spirit. When you've exhausted all other options, you find yourself in something challenging, you find yourself in a circumstance or situation that, that seems impossible. What do we do? Many of us, we try and sort it out ourselves we do this and we do that to try and make it right, to try and, uh, try and fix the problem. And it's only when we've exhausted all possibilities, when we've tried everything, when we've pushed on every door, that we get to the place finally where we say, yeah, okay, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. And then we go, God. But what Jesus is teaching is, just bypass all of that stuff, all of that hard work, all of that effort, all of that striving. Just bypass it all. And at the very beginning, when you recognize that you're facing something impossible, at that moment, humble yourselves and say to God, I am nothing. I need you. I depend on you. Let's not wait until we're at the end of our rope. And you know, I think for, for us in the primarily white middle class society that we are living in, it, it's, almost, it's almost really difficult for us to recognize ourselves as poor in spirit. You know, we can look at people in third world countries that are uh, living below the poverty line and think they are poor in spirit. They are poor in spirit. Or maybe those who are living in the conflict going on in Ukraine right now. Okay, they, they're poor in spirit. Or those who are struggling with the devastation of what's going on in Turkey and Syria. Okay, they're poor in spirit. But, but us? But me? And if that's our attitude, if that's true for us, then perhaps what we need to be doing this morning is challenging the way in which we view our lives. Because Jesus says... Jesus says, blessed, the happiest people are those who are poor in spirit. 
So the best option is for us to define ourselves as poor in spirit. Not to see ourselves as better off or, or doing okay than anyone else, but to see ourselves as poor in spirit. To see ourselves as people who have nothing and recognize our absolute need for God. Whether you're wealthy or not, whether you're healthy or not, no matter what's going on, we all need to humble ourselves and become poor in spirit. It shouldn't take poverty. It shouldn't take war. It shouldn't take natural disasters to get us there. The truth is, each and every one of us need God for everything. For everything. We need to accept that there is one who knows us so well, who knows what we want, who knows what we need, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And when we can get to that place, that is a step towards becoming poor in spirit to becoming poor in spirit, to, to open our hands and to, to bow our heads and say, God, I, I can't make it on my own, to hand over control to God, trusting that, that he knows best for our lives, that his will is perfect, to, to lay our circumstances and our situations at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that he knows best, that he's got it. That we don't need to strive, we don't need to stress, we don't need to struggle. Church, we need God. We need God. It seems like an obvious to say from the platform in church, but we need God. We need God. <clears throat> and the truth is that we need God because without God, without God, we need to pay for our sins. Without God, we need to pay for our sins. And the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Each and every one of us. And the Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's the cost of having sin in our lives. But... And that's a lovely but right there, isn't it? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The cost of sin in our lives is death, but God. Not, but I'll do nice things for people. Not, but I'll help the old lady cross the road. Not, but I'll feed the homeless. Not, but I'll clothe those who have nothing. None of that stuff. Yes, that's great, but none of it works if you don't have but God at the beginning. But God is giving us this gift, this free gift of eternal life. We need God because without him, we've got to pay for our debts and the cost of that is death. But Jesus stepped in, didn't he? Jesus stepped in. He came to earth. He lived. He died. He, he rose again to pay the price, to cover those debts so that we can have life. So how do we become poor in spirit? We recognize that we need God because without God, we've got to pay for our sins. Without God comes death and not life. 
You know, as we were singing that song before, Awaken uh, Your City, Awaken Your People, it really got me thinking that actually maybe we do need to be praying that, that we need to be praying, uh, awaken our friends, our families, our neighbours, our town. Awaken them to the truth that actually without God comes death. I think that's a challenge and it's certainly a challenge for me that actually we, we know this truth. But are we sharing it with the weight that comes with the truth? If the truth is that without God, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our co-workers will die. Why are we not telling them? Why am I not telling them? Why am I not shaking them by their collars and saying, you need to know Jesus. You have to find God because without God, you will die. We need to awaken this church. We need to awaken this town to actually begin to believe and to recognize and to live a life that acknowledges without God comes death. Without God comes death. God gives us everything, doesn't he? Even the breath in our lungs. We have it all because of him. This idea of being poor in spirit, it includes this honest confession that says, okay, yeah, I am sinful. Even if all you've ever done, if you're looking at your life and thinking, I live a pretty good life, I do good things, just have a think. Because we've all done something. Told a white lie. Looked at something that someone else hasn't thought, I'd quite like a bit of that. Whatever it might be, we've all done something, whether it's big or small in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of God, it's all sin. Sin is sin is sin. It doesn't matter what it is that you've done. So being poor in spirit includes this honest confession that, God, I'm sinful. And this this deepest form of repentance helps us to acknowledge our desperate need for God. Because if we've all sinned, if we've all fallen short of the glory of God, then that leads to death without him. That leads to death without him. So we need God. Those who are poor in spirit gladly cast themselves on God's grace. God, I need you. I need that grace. I need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to actually mean something, to wash over me, to cleanse me, to make me clean. And that is the promise. That is the free gift that is available to all. All we need to do is say, yes, I believe. The poor in spirit is a personal acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy before God, that we recognize our spiritual poverty, that there's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. Try as we might. Do as many good deeds as we might. There's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of the situation that we are in because of sin. And Jesus teaches us that if we want to achieve wholeness of life, if we want to be fulfilled, if we want to be blessed in the way that these Beatitudes are talking about, if we want to experience this genuine joy, we must acknowledge our complete and utter dependence on him. We have to come to a place where we trust him, 
where we trust him. Jesus told this story in Luke 18 that's a great example of of this principle. It says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It was the tax collector who recognized that he was a sinner who acknowledged all of his mistakes and his flaws and his failures and assumed a posture of humility. He assumed a posture of humility, banging his chest. Church, maybe this morning as a response to this beatitude, we need to assume a posture of humility. Maybe that's getting down on our knees before God. Maybe that's falling flat on our faces before God and saying, I am not enough. I need you. I am desperate for you. Without you, I am nothing. It's the tax collector that was poor in spirit in that moment who recognized his dependence on God. Author Max Lucado in his book, The Applause of Heaven, wrote this. You don't impress the officials of NASA with a paper aeroplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches to Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can write the formula H2O. And you don't boast of your goodness in the presence of the perfect. We're in the presence of God this morning. And there is no good deed There is nothing that we have done or ever could do that is enough to take us out of where we are because of sin in our lives. We can't boast of all of the amazing things that we've done like the Pharisee did. Oh, I tithe, I fast, I do all of this stuff. Yeah, that's great. But that's not enough if you don't recognize your absolute need for God. We can't live out God's standards by ourselves. And, and here's the funny thing about the, the truth of the gospel is that we need God. In order to do the things that he calls us to do, we need him. It's like this absolute and utter dependence. We sing the song, don't we, that in order to praise God, we need him to gift us with breath in our lungs so that we can praise him. We need him to give us the skills and abilities to, to do what he's called us to do. We need him for everything. But most of all, we need him for the sacrifice of Jesus that wipes us clean. So what's left for us to do is to come before God and say, I'm poor in spirit. 
with this recognition of our need for God. And then it says, then we will receive the kingdom of heaven. That is the promise. That is the the result of what we're talking about this morning. And what is the kingdom of heaven in this context? Well, it's talking about salvation. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about after we die in our physical selves, that we will be raised to life and spend eternity with our heavenly father. That death is not the end for us because we're poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is both this picture of eternity in heaven with God after death, like we saw in that passage in Romans. And the kingdom of heaven is also the eternal quality of life with God before death. It says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. But I came that they, they might have life and have it more abundantly. God wants us to have a good life here on earth. The promise is that we can have eternal life after physical death, but right now we can be living a life in all of its abundance. If we can accept our spiritual poverty, if we can come to God poor in spirit, humbled, maybe on our knees before God, then we will receive the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, I just thank you for these words that Jesus spoke out, these these challenges, these blessings, this list of, of characteristics that we need to fall under in order to be more like you. Jesus, we thank you for the example in which you lived so that we can look to you and say, yeah, that's, that's how we should be living, in all humility, in all grace and mercy. Help us, God, to be more like you day by day. Help us to acknowledge that without you, we have nothing. Without you, we are nothing. 